Before getting into the meat of this week's episode, let's pause to review some of the main threads of the history that we've covered so far. We concluded that early Homo sapiens lived in relatively small tribal bands, which, over the millennia, bred out the genes for proactive aggression. I see that you have something I want, so I knock you over the head and take it for myself, and bred in genes for reactive aggression. I see someone who I perceive as a threat, so I act aggressively towards him or her. We also first notice the in-group-out-group dichotomy that is so fundamental to our species. That is, humans can have an enormous amount of compassion toward those perceived to be in our in-group and have a very marked lack of compassion towards those in our out-group. This remained the norm for 95% of the time we've existed as a species. We continued living in small bands and kept selecting for genes that favored reactive aggression and disfavored proactive aggression. Then we discovered agriculture about 10,000 years ago. This led to the establishment of towns. These were presumably small at first, but by 8,000 years ago, it's estimated that ancient Jericho had a population of around 2,000 to 3,000 people, and that by 5,000 years ago, Uruk had a population of 40,000 to 50,000 people and continued growing rapidly. These cities created social stratifications resulting in complex in-group, out-group networks. A potter could not be considered an in-group by a member of the Urukan nobility and may have felt some reactive aggression towards a group of potters from the other side of town who had moved into his territory. Urukans who followed different priests and different sects of the Urukan religion may have felt some reactive aggression toward one another, but they were all in the same in-group vis-a-vis other cities who posed a military threat to Uruk. There began to be a very intricate web differentiating not only who's in one's in-group and who's in their out-group, but also the social status of different groups. By this time, there seemed to be so little out-group compassion in societies that cultures would frequently sacrifice enemies who were captured in war. Evidence suggests great crowds would gather to see these enemies sacrificed, positively enjoying the spectacle, as in the case of Aztecs, of a priest splitting an enemy's chest open with an obsidian hand axe, and laying out the victim's heart with his hand. By 2,000 years ago, the Romans no longer sacrificed enemies to gods. In fact, they would have considered that barbaric. Seeing their captured enemies fight to the death in the Colosseum, however, that was good fun. This may be a small, incremental improvement, but it was an improvement nevertheless. By the time a society evolved to the level of Roman culture, it generally displayed at least some increase in what we might call outgroup compassion. Probably more important than the discontinuance of human sacrifice for the Romans was the major change in their religion in the later empire. The Romans had a very entrenched religion. It had served them for hundreds of years. It was similar to the Greek religion, in which there were gods that were somewhat whimsical in their treatment of humans, and sometimes treated them well, sometimes not. These gods required animal sacrifices to keep them happy. So why did the Romans make the huge switch to Christianity? Of all the religions in the world they could have chosen, this is the one that specifically required outgroup compassion. Not only did it require its adherence to love your neighbor as yourself, Mark 12:31, but it laid down Jesus' famous direction to love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, Turn to them the other also. 
If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Luke 27 through 31. Okay, so we're still struggling to live up to that last one. But the point is, Christianity is a religion that is saturated with teachings about being compassionate, and not only to in-groups, but to out-groups as well. It's not the only one in the world that promoted compassion. We've seen this in Taoism, for example. But it's the only one that was available to the Romans that emphasized out-group compassion in this way. Certainly most Romans wouldn't live up to the the turn-the-other-cheek kind of compassion that Jesus taught, but now they had a roadmap of how to get there, a roadmap that the Western world would follow for the next couple of millennia. By the end of the empire, Western culture was definitely on the road to developing outgroup compassion. It would be a very slow, painful road, but it will be one of the paths that we will be following. One last quick comment about the Roman Empire before we continue on our journey. Ever since Edward Gibbon came out with his masterful book, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire in 1776, historians have been arguing about what caused the fall of the Roman Empire. Still, there's lots of theories, but little consensus. The main reason is that historians have been thinking linearly. There were too many invasions by the northern barbarians. The Romans relied too much on slave labor. Their government was corrupt. Their empire was too large, which required too large a military for their tax base. Christianity siphoned off all the talented leaders, and there were no competent Romans left to run the empire. The list goes on. This is the wrong way to look at history. Cultures, especially those as large as the Romans, evolve in incredibly complex, intricate systems. Think of a leaf being blown by a hurricane. There's no way to predict where that leaf will land, but meteorologists have learned to understand weather systems and can generally predict the paths that the hurricane is most likely to take, how strong it will be, and when it will blow itself out. This is how we can understand history, in the broad strokes. We do this by understanding history systemically. So the empire didn't fall because of bad emperors or too much reliance on slave labor but because of numerous factors. Still, if you're looking for a few factors, remember the butterfly effect, which says that a small change in the initial conditions of a nonlinear system can result in large differences in the latter state of the system. So here, we had the extraordinarily good governmental administrative system that was set up by Augustus at the beginning of the Roman Empire. His system of government was so good that it survived some very early poor governors including Caligula and Nero. If Mark Antony, who I don't think would have been a good administrator, had won the Battle of Actium and ended up as the empire's first emperor instead of Augustus, I think it would be highly doubtful that the empire would have survived Nero. This would not be a small change. But what is true for small changes in the initial conditions of a system is even more true for large changes. So if I were to list some of my top causes of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, probably my first two would be the Romans' failure to set up a system of succession in which the most competent men would be chosen emperor, and the breakdown not only of morals but work ethic in the later empire. Essentially, what I'm talking about 
is that there's an entitlement mentality that grew up after people became more wealthy and comfortable. I don't want to go to war, and besides, my taxes are too high already, so don't tax me anymore. There's obviously a lot more to it, but those are two of the highest on my list of causes for the fall of the Roman Empire. Yet, those are two things that are common to all empires 2,000 years ago. So, in reality, all empires were doomed to eventually decline back then, as they all did. Getting back to the point I left off last time, the question is not what caused the decline of the empire, but why did it last longer than any of the others? My answer in part, of course, is Augustus and his extraordinary administrative ability, and the fact that, periodically, Rome was able to raise extraordinary people up to become emperor. Welcome to Nero's Fiddle, Episode 12. Welcome to the Darkness. Complex systems require many inputs and components all acting with one another, providing the system with numerous attractors that help determine the direction and evolution of the system. The Roman Empire had organized much of Europe. It was much larger than this, but in modern Europe, the Roman Empire included Greece, all or parts of what it is today Macedonia, the Balkan countries, Bulgaria, Hungary, all of Italy, Spain, France, part of southern Germany, and southern England. It had organized these provinces into political units and brought them into a significantly higher level of economic wealth and civilization. When the Western Roman Empire collapsed, it left a much more educated elite with a far different concept of political organization than many of the Celtic, Frankish, and German tribes the Romans had conquered. When the Western Empire withdrew from Western Europe, most notably modern-day Spain, France, and southern England, it left a much more literate elite that was used to the Roman model of political organization as opposed to the tribal organization they had before they became Roman citizens. Sometime around 360 AD, Roman Britain had suffered raids from the Picts, or northern Celts, from Scotland, as well as the Celts in Ireland. Rome had barbarian raids and incursions to deal with elsewhere in their empire, and, as we've noted before, Rome's citizens didn't want to join an army in the numbers that they had during the Republic. Rome therefore turned to the Germanic tribes to kick out the northern Celts. This, however, was expensive, and Rome had severe problems elsewhere. When it no longer made sense for Rome to continue to spend more money on Britain than they received in taxes, they withdrew from Britain. Then, by 410 AD, all Roman troops had left Britain. This left the Britons, who had relied on the Romans for their defense, without any significant military training or infrastructure. This sounded like easy pickings for the Celts from the north. As incursions from these northern Celtic tribes continued, the Britons did what the Romans had done. Various kings from the small kingdoms had grown up in the wake of the Roman withdrawals and hired mercenaries from the continental tribes of the Angles, Saxons, and Jutes. These Germanic tribes were excellent fighters and expelled the northern Celts from the southern kingdoms. Then they went home and told their families and friends about the easy pickings to be had in Britain. They loaded up their boats with weapons and warriors and came back and conquered most of the kingdoms in southern Britain. 
Over the next hundred years or so, the Angles conquered the regions of East Anglia and Northumbria, and the Saxons conquered Sussex, meaning South Saxons, Wessex, meaning West Saxons, and Middlesex, Middle Saxons. The Jutes were a neighboring Germanic tribe from Denmark. They also attacked and set up a kingdom in what is today the county of Kent. We know little of these wars for a simple reason. Histories tend to be written by the victors, not the defeated, and the Angles and Saxons were illiterate. It's for this reason that the next 500 years or so of British history are known as the Dark Ages. This is true to some degree throughout Europe, but was much more the case in Britain than in some areas that managed to keep a higher level of literacy, like France. All of this turned most of southern Britain, which for the first time was being referred to as Angloland, or England, from the Christian country it was in the Roman days, back into a country worshipping the pagan gods of the Angles, Saxons, and the Jews. Over the next few hundred years, all of the new kingdoms would convert back into Christianity. There were multiple reasons for this, but again, there is something about the message of compassion in Christianity that was so different from the religions of these Germanic tribes that once again attracted the mass of people to convert. We also shouldn't forget that the Britons, who were more educated than their conquerors, were all Christians. What we know is that it was a time of great warfare in southern England with petty warlords fighting small kingdoms and numerous invasions from Germanic tribes. This coincided with the breakdown of the economy. There was no more Roman mint in England, and nobody was minting coin at the time. The question became then, what was a king to do when he had established a small kingdom in, say, Wessex or East Anglia? Since he didn't have enough coin to pay his soldiers, who was he going to get to fight for him? He didn't have money, but what he did have in abundance was land. He gave large grants of land to his most trusted supporters, these men who would be called dukes, ultimately from the Latin ducks or leader, would be in charge of vast estates. The duke swore an oath of loyalty to the king. In return for his grant of land, the duke was obligated to provide a certain number of armed warriors and other services to the king. They owed their allegiance to the king, which made them the king's vassals. Now it was the duke's obligation to provide men-at-arms to the king. This was expensive, as these warriors would need to be outfitted in armor, provided with weapons, and would need a trained horse. Where was the duke going to get money to pay these men-at-arms? He didn't have money either. Again, he had no money, but the king gave him large tracts of land, and these grants were very large, large enough to grant smaller tracts of land to those loyal to them. These men were given the title count. The area that was given to them was called a county. They are largely England's counties today. Again, counts took oaths of loyalty and were the vassals of their duke the superior to whom the vassal swore allegiance, whether a king, a duke, or a count, was called their liege. Both dukes and counts were considered nobility. Below the count were knights. Knights were considered lower nobility. Some were landed, and some owed no property at all. They almost have their own horse, armor, and weapons, however. Both dukes and counts had knights of their own, and they all owed their liege a certain number of days' service every year. Each noble had peasants to work their land. There was a hierarchy to peasants as well. At the top, there were the freeholders. These peasants could own their own land and sometimes owned a considerable amount of land and could be fairly well off. Below them were the villeins and serfs. Villeins were small-holding peasants. 
Serfs, on the other hand, never owned land. They were an odd mix of half-slave, half-free. They weren't fully slaves because they couldn't be bought and sold like a real slave. But they were tied to the land and had no right to move. They owed their lord two or three days' service a week, or so many days a year, in which they worked on the nobleman's property. When a nobleman bought property then, he bought the serfs that were tied to that property as well. This made more sense for the serfs initially, because in the times of anarchy after the Romans left, peasants were at the mercy of whatever warlord or band of raiders that might come by. If they became vassals of a duke or count, they would then receive the protection of that noble. It would make more sense for the duke or count to expend their energies protecting the helpless peasants if they knew the peasant could provide him an economic benefit. Each noble's land would be bequeathed to his eldest son in what is known as primogeniture. This left a lot of intelligent upper-class second and third sons with no land. Many of the more intelligent and capable of these disinherited sons of gentry were provided educations by their parent and went into the clergy. This filled the church with a top level of intelligent, competent men. Many of these men entered the church not because of any deep religious conviction, but because their other career options were limited. As the church in England slowly rebuilt itself during the Dark Ages then, capable administrators consolidated and expanded the church's holdings of land, making the church a large landowner in England with serfs of their own and different allegiances than the nobles had. This brief summary doesn't begin to do justice to the complexity of medieval society. It's important to note that the loyalties during this period were not to a country or even an empire. Loyalties were personal. The count owed his duty to the duke. The duke owed his duty to the king. The lands owned by a duke or king could, and importantly for England, did span national borders. When this happened, there was no question. Your loyalty was not to England or France, but to your liege who owned the land. So there was the king, the nobility, the knights, the clergy, the peasants, and the serfs. They were all tied to each other in a feudal web that was a lot more intricate than I've been able to describe here in the time we have. But there is also another aspect to society in Dark Age England that we haven't talked about yet, the towns. Towns were small at first, but they were definitely there and would play an increasingly important role during the Dark Ages as England progressed toward the Middle Ages. The nobility didn't initially give them a great deal of respect. I suspect this is because the merchants in the town didn't owe him any specific allegiance like his peasants did. Yet the town merchants were, of course, crucial to the functioning of the feudal system. The butchers processed the lord's cattle and prepared his meat. The tanner processed the leather. The cobbler made shoes, etc., etc. It was not a complex economy in the early days of the Dark Ages, but it was not a regulated economy. This allowed the small merchants and traders to quietly grow their businesses and pass them on to their sons. These were the basics of the feudal system that built up in the various Anglo-Saxon kingdoms that grew up during Dark Age England. At first, there were numerous kingdoms, including Wessex, Sussex, Middlesex, Essex, East Anglia, Kent, Northumbria, etc. The Dark Age history that we know is filled with wars between these kingdoms, invasions from the north, and marriage alliances that served to merge the kingdoms. This era was filled with interesting figures that are well worth getting to know. King Arthur probably actually lived, though we don't have actual proof of this. Scholars seem to think he was not actually a king, but perhaps a duke that fought valiantly in the wars against the Saxons. 
There was King Alfred, a Saxon king of Wessex, who fought bravely and prevented southern England from falling entirely to the Viking invaders from the north. Then there's Ethelred the Unready, whose mother seems to have named him well. He was less successful than Alfred, and he did lose southern England to the Vikings. It's all good history and completely worth getting to know. In the end, it won't make a huge difference for England whether Ethelred the Unready lost southern England to the Vikings, because everything would change in 1066. As all of this fighting among the Angles, Saxons, Jutes, and Celts were going on, the northern Britons were having their own problems. Before there were Vikings, Scandinavian farmers built longboats and fished the North Sea. It was probably on one of these fishing trips the Scandinavian fishermen noted a monastery on the island of Lindisfarne off the eastern coast of Britain, between Britain and Scandinavia. One of them seems to have had a great idea. Hey, let's go sack the monastery, and I'll bet we can carry off some great loot. They mounted a raiding party, and in 793, the Scandinavians, the forerunners of those who would be called Vikings, raided the monastery at Lindisfarne and made off with all the valuables from the monastery. In the 9th century Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, it's recorded that in the same year, that is 793, the pagans from the northern region came with a naval force to Britain like stinging hornets and spread on all sides like fearful wolves, robbed, tore, and slaughtered not only beasts of burden, sheep, and oxen, but even priests and deacons and companies of monks and nuns. These fishermen raiders went back home, probably showed off their wealth, drinking their mead from the golden chalice stole from the Lindisfarne Monastery, and bragging about how easy it was to sack the undefended monastery. This brought other raiders. Soon, northern Britain was repeating the same history of being sacked and then occupied by invading forces, as had happened in southern England. This time it was the Vikings, not the Germanic tribes that had attacked in the south. Within a couple of hundred years, most of the lands in northern Britain were controlled by the Vikings. Now there were the Anglo-Saxons in the south and the Vikings controlling the north. What could happen next? You guessed it. The 10th century saw fighting between the Vikings and the Germanic tribes for control of southern Britain. This is all great history, and I recommend you read it if I've whetted your appetite for it at all. For the record, it was the Vikings that won. They defeated the aptly named Ethelred the Unready. And between about 1016 and 1042, Britain was ruled by a succession of Viking kings. The last one, King Hardicanute, died childless. He named the Saxon Ethelred the Unready's son Edward, known as Edward the Confessor, as his heir. Why, after so much Scandinavian blood had been spilt to conquer Britain, did a Viking king leave the kingdom to the son of a Saxon he had defeated? This seems to make no sense to us, but it made perfect sense to Dark Age Britons. The answer is that Edward's wife, Edith of Wessex, was related by blood to King Hardicanute. It all made sense to the medieval mind, but really, it doesn't make much difference to us. What makes a difference to our story is that sometime during the reign of Edward the Confessor, he was visited by his cousin Edward the Bastard from Normandy. Normandy was the province in northern France that the Vikings or the Northmen had been given by the French to get them to stop from raiding France. The story goes that Edward had promised the kingdom to William after he died, 
When Edward the Confessor died childless in 1066 then, he bequeathed his kingdom to Harold Godwinson, the Earl of Wessex. Harold Godwinson didn't have much time to enjoy his reign. Almost immediately, Britain was invaded in the north by Harald Hardrada, the king of Norway. Harold Godwinson assembled his army and marched them 200 miles north in about four days to York and defeated Hardrada at the Battle of Stamford Bridge. No mean feat. But William the Bastard was pissed off that he hadn't been given the kingdom, so he invaded southern England. Harold Godwinson then marched his troops 275 miles south to Hastings, where William had landed. The well-rested William the Bastard beat Harold Godwinson's exhausted army at the Battle of Hastings. William was finally able to shake off his moniker, William the Bastard. Henceforth, he would be known as William the Conqueror. The Vikings had unified at least most of England. William was able to enter London with no effective opposition after he had defeated Harold Godwinson. He was brutal in consolidating his reign over Britain, but he was a very able administrator. By the end of his reign, England was unified. The feudal system was functioning, and King William I had set it on sound political footing. It had been 600 years or so since Roman left Britain, but in the 600 years, the country had changed immensely. Southern Britain had been a distant province of Rome that had been ruled by a faraway emperor. Northern Britain was a collection of warring tribes. By the end of the period we're talking about today, England was unified as one kingdom under William the Conqueror. After William, England will move from the Dark Ages to the Middle Ages. There will once again be an educated clergy. The University of Oxford would be founded in 1096. Now that England was a unified country, it wasn't subject to the constant invasions it once was, in which its wealth was carried away by its invaders. Slowly, England's wealth would continue to grow. London established the first English mint in the late Dark Ages, which would allow England to once again slowly develop a cash economy as the Middle Ages progressed. Importantly for our story, the English monarchy was not rich and was not able to establish itself as an absolutist monarchy as would grow up in other richer countries like France. This meant that there was less regulation of traders and merchants than in other countries. This would allow the English economy to grow on its own. Though people wouldn't understand the importance of a free market until Adam Smith, still 700 years in the future, merchants would establish guilds and trading relationships. Though the English economy was still in its infancy, it was poised to allow what we've been calling the power of chaos, that is, to allow the rules of chaos and game theory, or what Adam Smith would call the invisible hand, to shape the economy of the Middle Ages into the strong, incredibly connected economy that England would have, and that would eventually lay the groundwork for the economy that would power the Industrial Revolution. Our reading this week, if you haven't read it yet, is Beowulf, the old English poem written in the 6th century. It won't take you long. Again, if you want to get into the head of someone who lived in an earlier epic, read their stories. These were men from martial cultures who believed in strength, bravery, and loyalty. There's a reason the poem Beowulf has endured all these centuries. Enjoy.
See you next week.